Hey, welcome to the Wilds Cast. I just finished a great conversation with none other than David Sachs, who is a television writer and producer. He's won an Emmy, a Golden Globe for his incredible work on The Simpsons and Third Rock from the Sun. Now, this is one of those conversations that just sort of took a turn because, you know, he's a Harvard grad. He writes with Conan O'Brien. He's just like a very well-respected Hollywood writer who happens to be a Torah-observant Jew. So I thought I would talk a little about the Torah-observance Jew part peripherally and speak about more of his great success as a Hollywood writer. And you could see what this man really is interested in, and that is Jewish spirituality and why he made the kind of decisions he made in his life to become a Torah-observant Jew and how he navigated those challenges between being in the world of Hollywood and writing and observing Shabbat and the sacrifices he had to make and why he made them. And much of the conversation really gets into, why are we here? Why did God create us? And what is really significant and important in life? How do you define success and happiness? Because at the end of the day, you can be the most successful Hollywood writer in the world. And if you don't know why you're here and you don't know what truly brings joy and happiness to our life, then who cares? Who cares how much money you have? Who cares how much career achievement you've, you've, you've succeeded to be able to somehow accomplish in life? If you're miserable at the end of the day, or you don't know why you exist, what your purpose, your true meaning and purpose in this world is, and believe it or not, next 45 minutes, we really got into that. So take a listen. Thanks for joining the Wildcast, and make sure to subscribe. Okay, welcome to the Wildcast, David Sachs. Thank you for coming on. What an honor and a pleasure. Such uh, such a pleasure for us to to have you as our guest, uh, David. I'm going to jump right into it. You are a television writer and producer. You've won Emmys, Golden Globes for your work on The Simpsons, Third Rock from the Sun. You went to Harvard. You're an impressive guy, a Torah observant Jew, all the same time. How did you get into TV writing? And tell us a little also about your spiritual life growing up. Uh. Let's see, my, how did I get into writing? Oh, that, you know, that's a fun story. I, it was because I took a summer job as an elevator man in my apartment building on 79th Street and Broadway on the Upper West Side in New York. <laughs> that, that's, that is the short answer to a, a, a longer story. And uh, mm-hmm. in order to keep myself sort of sane on the elevator, I, I sort of dedicated myself to reading all the books that I, I, was kind of just too distracted to to look at in high school and in college. And and I was just overwhelmed by just the beauty of writing and literature and everything like that. And I decided I wanted to be a writer. Wow. And, and what was, well, where were you at Jewishly? Tell us, uh, you're from, uh, did you grow up in the city? You're, where are you from originally? Yeah, I grew, I grew up across the street from the Karlebach Shul on 79th Street. Nice. And that okay. turned out to be uh, just a... a a turning point in my life because when I was, even though um, I, I didn't grow up in an observant home, we, it was very mm-hmm. strongly Jewish, very proudly Jewish, uh, but not, not, we didn't keep Shabbos or kosher or anything like that. But I started going to Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach Shul when I was 14 and Rib Shlomo just sort of like uh, just opened up just the worlds and the depths and the beauty of Torah to me and 
And slowly, 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 I just sort of like kind of was drawn to it. And then when I was 24, I started keeping Shabbos. And, and this is fascinating because I don't, I don't, I don't meet a lot of people who were turned on to Yiddish guy through Shlomo Karbach. What was that like? Did he, did you just wander into synagogue? You said you grew up across the street or did he come to you? How did that work? Yeah. So my grandmother was, was spending a lot of time with us toward the end of her life and she was having trouble walking. And in this building, I grew up in a building called the Apthorpe. It's kind of a famous oh, sure. building. I know. Yeah. I, I live just seven blocks north of the Apthorpe. I know. The yeah. Yeah. Well. It's a great building. It's been in a lot mm -hmm. of movies and TV shows, mm -hmm. legendary building. Anyway. So um, it, it, there's something like 500 families in the building at that time. And there was only one Orthodox family in the entire building, but we were friendly with him. And my grandmother, toward the end of her life, uh, she wasn't quote unquote observant, but you know, obviously connected. And she she wanted to go to shul. And so they recommended the the, the closest shul, which was the Karlbach shul. Mm -hmm. And so she interacted with Rev Shlomo and loved him. And then she brought my mother who brought my sister and then they brought me. So that's kind of how I got there. Wow. So how did you transition into writing for The Simpsons? And did that in any way enhance, take away? Uh, was it a challenge to your Jewish identity? Uh, I'd love to hear a little about that. Um, so I started writing for television. I, I got my first job on a writing staff on an HBO show, actually, when mm -hmm. I was 21. So it was really just like a, a tremendous blessing that I was able to graduate from, from college. I, I, I started writing comedy on the Harvard Lampoon. That was the, the comedy mm -hmm. magazine there and the, the nation's oldest humor magazine. It, actually, the National Lampoon, if you're familiar with that, was yeah, founded sure. by people from the Harvard Lampoon. Mm -hmm. So um, it had a big what did, what, did, what did you study? What was your major in Harvard? I was a government major. Uh -huh. And okay. I, I thought I'd go to law school or something like that. It just, I, you know, a lot of people sort of like think maybe I wanted to be a writer my whole life and everything like that. And I, I was shocked to go into a creative field. I mean, it still sort of surprises me that, that I ended up making my career writing for television, writing comedy for television. I mean, that's so, that's so surprising compared to what I thought I was going to do. You know, I think I heard Conan O'Brien, who also went to Harvard, also wrote for The Simpsons, right? Yeah, Isn't that Conan what happened to him also? Yeah, was staying mm -hmm. in my apartment when he got his job on The Simpsons. I'll get and, out of here. And uh, we were on The Lampoon together. And in fact, I just uh, executive produced a show with him uh, called Final Space for Adult Swim and uh, Netflix International, HBO Max. It was a sci-fi animated comedy drama space opera but but uh so i was working closely with 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 conan on that up until recently wow oh wow he's he's i'm i'm just i just think he's one of the funniest guys on the globe uh on the planet yeah, and we knew it back and, then too it, it's it was a shock to no one that he became you know this superstar right. right wow all right so continue you were saying about so you were writing for this hbo uh show and how did that how did you get into the simpsons then and and what how did that sort of jive or not jive with your your Jewish trajectory of becoming more observant, right. more connected Jewishly? So, so yeah, so I started writing um, professionally when I was 21. 
And I think I got the job on The Simpsons when I was something like around 32. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had been doing it for quite a while at that point. And the nature of just writing for TV is you kind of just, if you're lucky, you just kind of go from show to show. Because even a very successful show only lasts a certain number of seasons. Right. So it, you, you kind of go from show to show, which is what I did. And and eventually, yeah, God smiled and, and I ended mm-hmm. up on The Simpsons, you know, so. Wow. That's a, and. and- and where and was that during the same period of time that you were, you know, starting to take your Judaism more seriously, or was that before or after? Uh, and was there any? Oh, yes, kind I of... started keeping Shabbos when I was twenty-four, so that was about probably about eight years into it at that point. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, was pretty had pretty much a, of a foundation at that mm-hmm. point, and. You know, it's always job to job. It's always interesting how people are going to react. You mean I in your one in, time? In, in, what's that? Mm-hmm. No, please continue. No, I was just saying. I I remember, like one time, it was Tishabov, right? Which, of course, is our saddest day. So much destruction and tragedies happened on that day, and we don't sit in chairs until midday. In other words, mm-hmm. at midday around 12 o'clock in the afternoon, approximately sort of like the, the tone changes a little bit. It becomes a little bit lighter. You can sit in a chair, but mm-hmm. I remember showing up for work at the Simpsons and it, it was Tish above. You're allowed to work on that day. It's not ideal. If you can take off, it's great. But you know, if you, if you have to work, you can work. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to sit in a chair. <laughs> And so I remember just sitting on the floor of the writer's room <laughs> wow. and not explaining myself. And the head writer who was someone who was brilliantly funny and just had a, just the sharpest and sharpest, sharpest wit. And, you know, it could be used for, <laughs> to decimate someone. Right. Um, so I'm sitting on the floor by his desk without explain, uh, unexplained. And he didn't mention anything until about, I don't know, about half an hour into it. And he just kind of mm-hmm. looked at me and he said, the Jewish thing? <laughs> and I nodded my head. And he was like, yeah. and then he just nodded his head. That's I'll it. I never right. remember that. I'll never, rather, I'll, I'll never forget that. Just there was a certain compassion, a certain respect certain acknowledgement that was not um characteristic of how he treated things of that ilk right and that made a big impression on me what was it apparent to others with whom you were working let's say at the simpsons specifically that you had become uh, observant that you had become religious like did it come out in your writing at all or was it was it difficult not to you know sort of sneak some of that in to your writing on that show or other shows? Yeah. So, you know, when it came lunchtime, we'd all eat together Mm -hmm. and often work through lunch and I'd order from a kosher restaurant. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it was apparent every single day that, that, uh, that I kept Shabbos that I kept kosher. You know, I, I remember that I, I, it was a large room. And there was one, one way out and I sat on the furthest side of the room. Mm-hmm. And so I had to walk by, you know, maybe 10 writers in order to get out the door. 
And so when it came time for leaving on Shabbos, you know, this, these people, to be like a really good comedy writer, it, this isn't 100% of the time, but a lot of the time, you really have to have like an, a finely tuned eye for hypocrisy in people and society, especially if you want to write satire. Mm -hmm. And it, you have to have like just this like bullseye kind of kind mm -hmm. of connection with with destroying, exposing it and destroying hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anything that smacks of religion, you know, is is a prime target for this type of cynicism. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so a lot of environments you, you you'll you'll be in, and Shabbos is coming around, and people will be like. Good Chavez, good Chavez. This was not that crowd. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> not right, right. Those people. And so when it came time for me to leave early on Friday, yeah. Um, because of course that was part of my working arrangement with them that I didn't work on Chavez, uh, which they honored again to their great credit. Um, I wouldn't want to make a big deal of it. So I would just stand up when it was time to leave, walk across the room, and I would go right you past know, like the 10, probably, past the 10, yeah, past the, the 10 other writers. And I was going to the bathroom, right? But I, I right. never came back. Right. And so a year after I left the show, a year, I found out that I had a nickname. I didn't know. It. And they told me that they called me the invisible Jew. <laughs> and why, how? Because at a certain point, they'd look to my seat to, you know, get my feedback on something and I wouldn't be there. And they'd be like, right. did you see him leave? I didn't see him leave. <laughs> next week, we're going to watch to see him leave. And then right. the next week, we'd come and say, did anyone see him? We didn't see him leave. <laughs> were, were there any challenges? Were there any, uh, I mean, it sounds like they were pretty tolerant and respectful. Um, I mean, was that generally the experience or not always? I mean, the the real challenge that I experienced was was not there. It was the first place where, the first show that I was on where I tried to keep Shabbos. Mm -hmm. And that was my first sitcom. So I was 24 at the time and had been writing for a little while, but for a lot of different reasons, I decided that I, you know, I was ready to kind of take this thing, which was very strong inside me and try to make it, you know, my reality, my, my life, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't, I just didn't want to keep this light inside of me anymore, keep mm -hmm. it trapped inside of me, hmm. um, which took a lot of courage as, as, you know, people who have gone through that process know in their own life. And so I decided to do it. I, I had just gotten this job on this show. It was, it was a comedy. It was called Women in Prison. And if that doesn't sound funny to you, America agreed. <laughs> It was actually ranked 99 out of 99 shows on Prime Time. Okay, well, uh, at least it made it. It, 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 was, it was a top 100, though. You could still say that, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were quite 100 shows on the air, but yes. Right, right, okay. And I, from naivete, I wasn't trying to pull anything or, you know, yeah. be tricky or whatever. I, I had just been keeping Shabbos on my own. I, I, I was in between jobs at the time when I decided to start keeping Shabbos. And so so I got this job with my then partner and who I had done all my writing with up until that point. We started writing pieces for the Lampoon together. Mm 
in college. And so I decided that, you know what, I'm keeping Shabbos now. And I didn't mention anything to the bosses when they hired me. And the first Friday came and there wasn't much to do. And it was in August anyway. So Shabbos comes in late, 7 p.m., whatever it is. So came and left, no problem. The second week I was there and, you know, it was one of those meetings that seem like it's going to end, but, you know, you never know. Someone says, oh, yeah, one more thing, and that could be another 20 minutes. And I'm literally sitting in front of this big picture window in front of this row of palm trees. It was very L.A., and I'm watching the sunset in front of my face. And I lived a short drive from the studio, so, but it was like really starting to get tight. And I hadn't mentioned anything to my bosses about Shabbos. So I didn't really know what to do. And so I figured at a certain point that the only thing I could figure out was I just stood up and I left the room and I never came back. <laughs> and this, by the way, was where I learned that technique that I would later use on The Simpsons. Just sort of like stand up and walk out. And, right. You just know, the, the, and explain the, later. Right. The, the disappearing Jew. Um, exactly. So anyway, they, 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 I, I thought, you know, so I, I can't go through this every week. And, and obviously, you know, and so the next week I, I discussed it with my bosses and I, I said, would it be okay for me to take off a little bit early on Friday to, to observe the Sabbath. And they were like, no, no, it's not all right. And had we known that you wanted to do this, we never would have hired you to begin with. Wow. So and what, they told what did me you to do? think about it, but I didn't, I didn't, my mind was made up, but they said, think about it. And I didn't want to be confrontational with them. So I said, okay, I'll think about it. And, um, anyway, my, I would, my, my, my agent told me I'll never work in television again if I don't continue to work. You know, you know that that phrase that you hear in old movies, you'll never work in this town again. <laughs> I was like, wow, people actually say that. Right. Wow. And someone saying it to me. It was it was pretty wild. Wow. Um, I, I, you so know, what I did you do? Partner, so what what, you what did you do? Well, you know, I don't know what historical figure said this. I wish I did. Which is that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that phrase at the time, but I, it, it, I think it's, I think it's really true. And I really felt like I was in this place in my life where I had seen a lot of life and I was sort of like extrapolating different directions, different ways that I saw quote unquote success going. And it felt to me like every version of it led to a dead end. Um, I, like most people, I, I believe I have a soul and that the soul endures. And if the soul endures, that means that as crazy as it sounds, we're kind of all immortal. <laughs> because it's true, you're not immortal within a body. It's not immortality like in you know, some sci-fi film, but nonetheless, your reality actually is immortal. You know, I think an, an important point, which I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, I saw this from Rabbi Ari Kaplan. Mm -hmm. he, he makes, when he talks about the Im immortality of the soul, 
he sort of compares it to a, say, well, I got a new phone recently and they transferred all the information on my old phone to my new phone. Mm -hmm. So, so what's the essence of you? Is it your arms or your legs or is it your identity and your feelings and your, your vast experiences? You know, that, that's who you really are, right? And when your soul leaves your body, you leave with it. In other words, a lot of people think that when people die, even believing people, they believe they have a soul and they think their soul goes up and it sort of disappears in the great oneness of God. But believe it or not, that's not the Jewish view at all. You remain you. Okay, it's true, you're not in a body. But in terms of your ego, your identity, your, your everything else, you remain you forever. It's pretty wild. And so I was thinking that if that's the case, I've got to get eternity right. Right? Like this world is like, like you snap your fingers. This world compared 120 years compared to eternity. Like if I'm really going to be ambitious, and I've always been ambitious in my life. If I'm really going to be ambitious, I've got to get eternity right. So this is a lot of kind of what was going through my mind at the time. And, uh, and so I love this world. I really do. You know, I've only had good experiences. But, you know, this world is just a fragment of what really exists. So you're saying, just, just so I can... Because this is such a powerful message for our listeners, for me, for all of us, which is to make decisions in life based on the information in the phone, not the phone, right? Because the information in the phone just can be moved around. That's who we really are. That's the metaphor you were just giving us. And um, how do you um, how do you inspire someone who's in their twenties, who has been taught, like all of us have been taught, that accomplishment. And material success is really how we define joy, happiness, and fulfillment. Because, you know, once you see joy, happiness, and fulfillment in coming in terms of success in whatever career or profession, you know, you're going to do anything for it and you're going to sacrifice anything. I mean, the line you just shared about if you don't stand for anything, you're going to fall for everything, which is a very, very powerful line. You know, easier said than done. How do you how do you get to a place where you can have that kind of sophisticated or mature kind of thinking, looking at the big picture, not looking at these 120 years, as you say, but looking at eternity. And is this job, which requires me to, let's say, not have Shabbat in my life, but it's a job that can keep me on a certain career path. That's going to take me where I need to go. How do you give up on that? How do you inspire somebody to give up on that? That's, that's not simple. I, I uh, was friendly with someone many years ago, um, and he was he was a singer, an incredibly skilled, um, you know, talented singer. And he had, you know, it's hard to get jobs if you're not in some successful band or something like that as a singer. And he had just gotten cast in a a tour, a, a national tour of a Broadway show to to be one of the singers, which is you know a good gig if. If that's uh, if that's your field, but he was just getting into Shabbos, and so he wanted to keep Shabbos, but he, you know, was early on, and he also 
wanted to have this job, obviously. So he asked me, what, what should I do? And, you know, I was just starting out myself and Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach was in town. I said, what are you asking me for? Ask him. <laughs> so he asked him, and this is the answer he gave. This is what Rib Shlomo said. Amazing answer. He said, have you ever met someone who you thought was your soulmate and it turns out they weren't? That was his answer. <laughs> in other words, this job, you think it's your soulmate, but mm. it isn't. It isn't. Wow. 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 Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that just to go further and give you just a, another answer, a complimentary answer, but just a different perspective. You use the word success and success is one of these incredibly powerful words. People would throw themselves in front of a bus for success. But then you ask the average person, how do you define success? And they'll be like, uh, well, uh, success, uh, wait a second. You're willing to throw yourself in front of a bus for a thing that you can't define? There's a problem there. That is a problem. Every single person has to begin, if they want to get their life together and they want to be serious individuals, every single person has to begin by defining for themselves what is success. Yeah. Well, I think the easiest answer that most people can come up with, I know the answer that I was raised with, and, I, and I'm coming from an observant home. You know, I was raised in the modern Orthodox world, but I think, you know, success was very much defined in material terms. You know, how much money you make, how much achievement you've accomplished in your career, how well thought of you are by your colleagues, right? Also, do you have a successful marriage? Are you able to develop a family? And are you successful at transmitting your values and fundamental beliefs, Judaism, to the next generation? See, the, the only problem with that is, is that you can have every single one of those things that you just mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. In spades, you can have every single one of those things and be miserable. Yeah. So if you have all of those things and you're miserable, how can you possibly define that as success? Excellent point. You can't. That's the answer. <laughs> exactly. You, you exactly. And so, and so more and more as like, People's standards of living, just by virtue of the fact of their parents' wealth or just technology and everything like that, just rising up and lifting everybody up, people are less kind of in survival mode. And now they're thinking about happiness and prioritizing happiness. And the reality is, is that unless a person is in harmony with their soul, they are not truly going to be at that next level of happiness because they're going, they, we have been acquainted with transcendence now mm -hmm. and, and transcendence is really fleeting and people are looking for transcendence and drugs and sex and entertainment and any way to numb their minds. But, you know, people are sort of catching on to the fact that those are all kind of, counterfeit forms of transcendence yeah. that the real transcendence you can just achieve through your relationship with God.
And then once people catch on to that, they're like, wait a second, that's where the money is. You know, they asked a famous bank robber, Willie Sutton. They said, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money at. <laughs> once you understand that you actually don't need anything to achieve this highest form of happiness, which is transcendence, then it's sort of like, just sign me up. And that's Torah. But you've got to find the right Torah teacher. See, a lot of people get confused. They think that, that just like you can buy Coca-Cola in a bodega, in a supermarket, from a hot dog vendor, and it's always going to be the same Coke. <laughs> but you've got to find the Torah. And I'm talking about authentic Torah right now. Torah, true Torah comes in many flavors. And you've got to make sure that you're finding the right wavelength of it. Because once you find that, you're set. And don't think if you went to a place where everyone raved about the rabbi or the teacher, whatever it is, and you didn't resonate with it, that it's not for you. It is for you, but you got to keep on looking for your teacher. Yeah, yeah. That's a very beautiful, famous teaching in uh the ethics of our fathers of Asay Lacha Rav, make for yourself a teacher. It doesn't say Asay Rav. It says Asay Lacha. It's exactly what you just said. Make for yourself. It's got to work for you. Right? Because every soul is different. By the way, Rav Cook, <clears throat> the late and great first chief rabbi of Israel, said also that how do you know what, you know, there's a lot of ideas in Kabbalah that different souls connect with different aspects of Torah. Or Chaim HaKodesh wrote this as well, another great Kabbalistic commentator on the Chumash, on the Torah, that there's a chelak ha-Torah ha-me'ureset l'chol Yisrael, he says, that there's a portion of Torah which is betrothed differently to each and every Jew. And when you find your chelak of Torah, Rav Cook said, you should latch on to that, which means that you don't have to like master every area of Judaism. You have to find the area of Judaism that speaks to you and once you feel that, he wrote, that metaphysically is something you've, I guess, stumbled on what is, what, you know, your chalak, your special portion of Torah, and you should be all over that. That's, that's your go-to Torah. Right. And then I would just add one more word. That's you found your avenue to transcendence at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I am, I'm learning a, a very exalted uh, Torah book right now called the Pischei Sharon. Mm -hmm. And what he, he, he defines transcendence in a very amazing, um, surprising way. Most people will tell you transcendence is when you're able to uh, essentially leave yourself in whatever the most beautiful, exalted version of that is, right? You go mm -hmm. to a higher place. But listen to this. Jewish thought says that your soul is partially contained within your body and outside your body as well. So it's one soul, but part of it is inside you. And the part that's outside of you actually goes all the way up to the highest heavens, to the throne of glory, right? which in itself is amazing because if you were to stand in the mirror and I were to ask you, where do you end? You would probably talk, point to the top of your head. 
And yet the reality is every single person ends in, in the highest dimensions, right? We're all giants, actually, if you could actually look at each other with the proper eyes. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That, by the way, it's, by, by yeah. the way, David, that's, that's what some people believe is the idea behind wearing a yarmulke, that life does not end here. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That there's, nice. something, there's something above us. And you're saying not just thing above us that we extend into something beyond us or this yes, world. Yes, very much so. Very much so. In fact, they say that the body is the shoe of the soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning to say that just like your shoe covers a very small part of your body, so to your body covers a very small part of your soul. Yeah. It's just a, a, a truer way to actually see yourself. But anyway, what's the point? So the Pisgah Sharms has the following definition of transcendence. That when you do something holy, right? You do a, a mitzvah. You learn some Torah. You, you sing a song, by the way, a, a holy song. You do kindness for another person, an act of love. That at that moment, you bring your higher self that aspect of your soul, which is outside you, you bring it into yourself. Mm. And that mm. that's transcendence. In other words, transcendence is not leaving your sense. The transcendence is not leaving yourself. Transcendence is actually taking the higher aspect of yourself and bringing it into yourself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It is amazing. And it's also, thank you for sharing this, because it's also, I think the main way that Judaism distinguishes itself or is distinguished from some of the other Near Eastern religions that emphasize the concept of transcendence, let's say like Buddhism, because the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to, is really to transcend the finite limitations of one's physical self. Judaism believes in an aspect of that, but as you just beautifully said, that the ultimate goal is not to really escape the physical world, it's to bring down godliness into the physical world, to bring that element of spirituality, what we call in Hebrew Kedusha, of holiness, into our into who we are. Like we're not physical beings incidentally. God didn't like make a mistake and accidentally cause our souls to be in these bodies. He wanted the soul, he wanted the highest of spiritual anything to somehow be in this lowly physical realm. To create what the Kabbalists call a dira betachtonim, which is a uh, a dira is like a is, a is a home for God for the highest of spiritual dimensions in the tachton. Tachton is in in the lower regions in the physical world. So the goal really is, in Judaism is not what we what you were saying before transcendentalism. The goal is that the trans the transcendental is brought down to earth, and that's our task as the Jewish people. And I, I think, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm really happy we're having this conversation because, you know, so much of religion is looked on as an escape. How can I spiritually escape the the finitude and the, I don't know, just like the, you know, people are numbing each other. You just said it before, we're numbing ourselves, you know, to, to, to the baseness of our existence. So we, you, one way is just to get out of it, is to leave it. And some people misinterpret Torah and mitzvot as a way of leaving the physical. But it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly what you're saying. And I love your shoe analogy. I was just writing that down. 
just just like the the shoe is the body um how did you put that the shoe is the body so, for the soul so yeah so the 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 body is the shoe of the soul right okay good the body, the body is the shoe of the soul that just like your shoe covers a small part of your body so too the body only covers a small part of the soul right right and that's not mine by the way that that's um that might even be the zohar for uh, so yeah, that's from a yeah. My holy book. So and by the way, that, that definition of transcendence, the Pischei Sharim brings that from the Vilna Gaon. Beautiful. Now, you know, it, it's interesting because in order to people, in order, you know, that took a lot of guts to make a decision like that, especially in the arts where it's so difficult to make it as a writer, as an actor, as a musician, and to actually give up something of the body, if you will to give up this quote unquote success that you have this dream of becoming a whatever in your case, it was to be a great Hollywood writer. And, you know, did you know at that point that if I give this up, because if I give the, you know, if I don't give it up, I'm giving up Shabbos, you know, or an aspect of Shabbat at least. Right. So how did you have the faith to do that? How did you have the fortitude to say, you know, it's just not worth it. I'm just not going to be as happy down the road. Without yeah, shock. I felt like I felt like nothing. I felt like you know they they were telling me I, I was going to lose my job. I, I was going to lose my writing partner too. I was gonna. I was told I was never going to work in television again. And you know maybe you think that I was freaking out at that moment, and I was you know concerned obviously, but I wasn't freaking out. And and the reason is because I knew nothing bad would come from keeping Shabbos. <laughs> I might have to change careers. But I knew nothing bad is going to come from keeping Shabbos. And so how did I know that? Because I, even at 24, I had really, you know, I grew up, as I said, in New York City. I didn't grow up religious. I, I went to Harvard. I went to lots of parties and knew lots of sons and daughters of the rich and famous and all the rest. I really was exposed to a lot of things, you know. And I didn't see all of life. But I saw enough of life to know that there's more to life. Mm. By the way, that line, I asked my wife <laughs> when we first met. My wife's not from an observant background. She became observant around the same age you did, 23, 24. And she came from a great family. She was well on her way to a wonderful career. And I was like, well, what inspired you to want to become more observant? Like everything was going okay. Like, you know, life's good. And she said the exact same line. She said the line, and we actually used it as a tagline on our brochures for years at MGE. She said, because I just couldn't believe this was all there was to life. There had to be more to life. I just couldn't believe yeah. that I was placed here to have friends, have a very pleasant life, get a career, have married, get married, have children, please God, one day, and then just die. And then, I don't know, the next generation does the same thing. Like, it's got to be something deeper to this, this whole being alive thing. Yeah, for you know. sure. I mean, I mean, just look at this world. How, how is it even possible there's a world? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. people just sort of like, they, they take this assumption that, that the world has to be here right. And, right. and I'm in it. But who says there even has to be a world? You know, when you begin to sort of like unwind 
some of these givens, you realize that everything is absolutely miraculous. And in fact, believe it or not, the Ramban, who's one of our, you know, most authoritative Torah commentators writing a thousand years ago, before the Hasidic movement, by the way, by hundreds of years, said the following statement, which is pretty shocking, actually. He said that anyone who doesn't understand or accept that every single thing is a miracle has no portion in the Torah of Moses. And you know, how about that is a blanket statement? That everything is a miracle, that that is Torah. And if you don't understand that the Torah is saying that every single thing that happens is a miracle, then you don't even understand the first thing about Torah. You know, because there are two categories of, of miracles. The ones that surprise us and the ones that bore us. But each <laughs> is still a miracle. <laughs> of course. Like I'm bored by the rising and the setting of the sun. Right. Okay. Right. So but, Mazel tov. You, I'm glad you're bored by it, but is it any less a miracle just because it right. happens every day? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's a famous Ramban passage from Nachmanides. Like what is really a miracle? He's, he's sort of throwing the whole thing. So there's miracles we got used to that we're bored by, like the way you said that, you know, the, the growth of a blade of grass in a field the birth of a child, the rising and setting of the sun, right? That's just stuff happens every day, but it's no less, you know, miraculous than, I don't know, the, the, the water turning the other way because we just yeah, got me, used to the water going this way, you know? Yeah, let me, let me give you an example, okay? You see, really the idea God tricks us, not in a bad way, but God creates this illusion, which allows us not to see things as miraculous. And do you know what, what, how he does it? Um, through time, time. And I, I'm going to give you an example, okay? You mean just, getting, may, may, just getting desensitized to something well, over a period of time? Listen to this example. Imagine yeah. I, you have a pencil on your desk, right? And then you leave to do something, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever it is, you come right back. And now growing out of your pencil are like five large grapefruits are attached to your pencil. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what? Yeah, it's a piece of wood. And there's these five grapefruits attached to this pencil, to this piece of wood. This is unbelievable. But, but think about it. What is a tree? What is a fruit tree? It's just a piece of wood. How does juicy, delicious fruit come out of a piece of dry wood? Like, it's, it's impossible. You know, we, we know genetically speaking, the child usually more or less looks like a parent. How does an orange look like a tree? <laughs> it, it, there, it, it is, there's no connection whatsoever. So, but what happens and then it's even more miraculous because it comes this giant tree with comes out of this tiny pit. How does this little pit turn into a giant tree? So this is where time comes in. Mm -hmm. This is where we get whacked out. You ready for this? Because mm -hmm. I plant the pit, then I put it in the soil, then I water it. And then days pass and months pass and years pass. And I see it poke through the ground start to develop, start to develop. Then I see a little sprout from the tree coming out. 
oh, it's green. Oh, that's so interesting. And then eventually it becomes fruit. And so over time, it seems normal. Yeah. But there's nothing normal about it. No, no. That's amazing. Time just has this way of of making us bored and making us just desensitizing the, the whole. Now, that was on purpose. You know, the rabbis teach that if everything looked so miraculous, then we would be stripped of our free will. Exactly. Right? Things looked yeah. so much. You know, I love that teaching that um, the Hebrew word for world, olam, is connected to the word he'alam, which means to be hidden. That the world in yeah. which we live, God is hidden. Now he purposely yeah. hides himself because if he made himself too obvious or too clear, we would simply not be able to um, choose the good. And for whatever reason, God wants us to choose it and to have enough of a reason not to choose it. You know, um, yeah. I, you know the other analogy I heard, I saw this in the writings of the Tanya. I've been studying Tanya for the last couple of years. And the Balatanya says something very, very powerful. He uses the analogy of a fetus in utero. Like, does the fetus in utero have any awareness of how it is being sustained by its mother through the umbilical cord? The fetus has no sense. And the Balatanya uses that. The Balatanya was written by Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi. It was like the third rabbi after the Baal Shem Tov and the Hasidic movement. He was a brilliant, brilliant rabbinic scholar, lived in the uh, 1700s. And he said, we are like almost like the fetus in utero. We are in this world. The world seems to somehow sustain itself, or we kind of think we're sustaining it. And we have no idea that there's this umbilical cord, if you will, that is enabling us to continue to survive and to exist through God's benevolence. But we're not aware of it. Now, if one of my students were listening to this, they would right away ask, well, if God wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he make himself a little less hidden? <laughs> Why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he expose the umbilical cord so we can see how we are here? And again, that, that, that starts getting into issues of free will, losing a sense of our individuality, uh, not getting sucked back into the vortex of the original source, spiritual source of which we emanate. Um, it's God's purposely hidden, uh, but we're supposed yeah, to look well, through he, that. He wants, yeah. he wants us to find him. Yeah. Right, it's a little he, like he hide and seek. Little, uh, it's like Absolutely. a little, a little hide and seek. You know what I mean? Like it's a big hide. And seek. It's, yeah. a, it's a big hide and seek, and it's the point of everything. In other words, it's not like God is doing something unfair. This is the point. Yeah. This is the point. In order to look around to discover that there's something greater that's animating and guiding absolutely everything, and to attach yourself to that. That's the whole point of your life. And what if you feel, David, let me ask you, wow, I, I didn't expect us to get into this theological conversation, but I'm loving it. So thank you. How, what would you say to someone who's just not feeling that? Like, I, you know, I look around and I don't see any guiding force. Stuff just looks right. and feels feels random. It doesn't feel right. like there's any, and you're just telling me to believe in that. You well, know, I mean, yeah. here's the thing. It's like, I mean, we're really kind of getting to the core of everything. I have, I have my own version that I sort of came up with independently of, of the, of the fetus analogy that you gave, which is, which is beautiful. Um, I once imagined a conversation between two fish 
<laughs> and one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. <laughs> right? That, that's the end of the story. Right? Right. So what's the joke? Right. The joke is that there's nothing except water. Water is the only thing that's going on. But you've got these two great philosophers, these great <laughs> intellectuals, like speculating about the existence of water. That they're so swimming the that, that they're swimming in. Right. Yeah, exactly. We're the fish. The, the only thing going around, the only thing that's going on, period, is God. It's the only thing that's going on. And we're so immersed in that reality, we can't see it. We have this expression in English called hiding in plain sight. <laughs> and that's, you know, can you see air? No, but it's, it's all around you, you know? So let me, let me ask you this. <laughs> A lot of people... I call this bad math. Okay, so here's some bad math. God exists to the extent that I believe in him. <laughs> for you, Rabbi, God really exists a lot. But for me, God doesn't exist so much. Let me ask you something. If I don't believe in air, do I suffocate? No, because <laughs> it's right. there regardless. Right. Air is there regardless whether I believe it or not. Yeah. God is there regardless whether you acknowledge him or not. Yeah. And out of his love, he continues to sustain you even when you're making bad choices and saying that you don't believe in him, right? So, so the amazing thing is, is that I, I was having lunch with a friend of mine. I said, where did you park your car? He said, across the street. I said, do you realize that you can't get to your car without swimming through godliness? Right? Like, that, we're the fish. <laughs> this, is, this is what's going on. So, so you say to me, what do you say to someone who doesn't feel it? I say, you know something? Mazel tov. Um, you know, congratulations, you don't feel it. Does that mean it's less true? No, it's not right. less true. Now right. that the fact that it's reality, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think we have to push back on, um, this is one of the issues in our society today. Because when I started out doing outreach 25 years ago, um, I don't think as many people defined reality based on their feelings nearly as much as we do today. You know, you ask uh, on, on, on a typical talk show, the interviewer won't ask what people think anymore, but what you feel. Our feelings are now becoming reality, or at least that's the way a lot of young people are defining reality. And I I think that's it's an issue for many reasons, and I think one of the reasons we're touching on here in our conversation, just because you and I don't see or feel something doesn't mean it's not the reality. It's a little too much, I don't know, we've gone, I think we've just gone a little f too far in, 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 in the confidence that we put in our own, you know, experiences or feelings. And experiences are important. We're all products of our experiences, of course, and our feelings we have to acknowledge. But the feelings don't make up reality. They don't express the reality. Especially, especially when you start studying more Torah, specifically Kabbalah, that God has to create a certain distance in order for us to be able to benefit from God. I always love the analogy of the, the lampshade. Right? How many bulbs do you have in your room right now that don't have something covering it? It could be in, in the ceiling. It could be, it's just, it's too bright. And we want the benefit from the light. But we can't get too close to it or else it's not pleasant. It's not something we can benefit from. 
And, yeah, but at uh, the same time, remember the light is within us. What is your soul? Your soul is a piece of God. So yeah. God is surrounding you. He's within you and everything like that. But see, one of the things that, that I, I think everyone asks themselves is if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? Yeah. This is everybody's question, by the way, mm -hmm. whether they can articulate it or not. And the Torah actually has a brilliantly simple answer to this. You know why the world is so messed up? Because it isn't finished yet. <laughs> you know, I, I like to give this as an example. Imagine you walk into the kitchen and there's a glass bowl with some brownie mix and a raw egg on top. And you dip your fingers in the raw egg and the brownie mix and you taste it and you go, these brownies are terrible. Well, <laughs> it's not, you're not finished yet. Yeah. It's like, just like this world, this world isn't finished yet. And that's why we were created. God made us partners with him in terms of finishing the world. You see, people get it wrong. They think that the Garden of Eden was this cosmic spa and we blew it. And all of history is getting back to zero. We're just trying to get back to the way we started. Right? But that's not. My Rebbe said something so brilliant. He said, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? <laughs> right? In other words, that, that shows you that the world was complete, was, was, that shows you that the world was created incomplete. And that our job is to finish the world. How do we finish the world? Through the Torah and through the mitzvahs. Those are the tools that God gave us to partner with him in terms of bringing about that vision that he had from the very outset, which was a world of peace, without hatred, without hunger. That, that's where we're getting to. And how do we get there? Through making proper decisions, which means we need free choice. Yeah, yeah. That, that is such a, the, the, first of all, the brownie mix is a great analogy. <laughs> now it's only you only feel that because you know what a good brownie tastes like and you realize how ridiculous it is for someone to evaluate the brownie before it becomes the brownie okay the problem i think is that we get so overwhelmed by the our emotions of like seeing such pain and frustration in the world and if god is supposed to be so good how could god allow for pain and frustration but if you're actually convinced that the world is here for a reason and not just to satisfy us but the world is here to challenge us, to develop us in a certain kind of way, then it's, right. it, it's broken on purpose. It's broken for a reason. Instead of complaining, how could it be so broken? Get to work fixing it because that's why I created you in this place. Think about, think about you know, I'm, I'm just reacting to the brokenness of the world, which is, you know, a kind of like, that's just a knockout punch for so many people. They see the brokenness of the world. And like I say, yeah. if, there, if, if there's a God, how, how is the world so messed up? They see the suffering. They see the brokenness. But let me give you just a different perspective of it, um, which is, you know, think about Monopoly for a moment. What are the game pieces? So you want to play Monopoly? Okay, great. So you get the top hat. You get the race car. You get the wheelbarrow, right? Those are, those are your game pieces, right? So God mm -hmm. says, so you're in this world, right? So you're going to be part of the story of this world, right? So you get a little brokenness, that's your game piece. 
and you get a little brokenness and you get a little brokenness Mm. and everyone takes the brokenness, which God deliberately created and you put it back together. You create fixing tikkun healing where there was brokenness and then you advance the world toward this epic vision. Why is it taking so long? Because it's so epic. (laughs) I mean, like, you know, I, I play a game when I walk by houses that are under construction and I just, I just wait to watch that final day where it's complete. Mm-hmm. Like, what about the universe? If a house takes a long time, if a building takes a long time to... What about the universe? It's so epic. But that's why it's taking so long, because it's like such a massive project that we're involved in. But how much more satisfying is it going to be when we complete the process? And the, the end was built into the beginning. Success is guaranteed. We just have to continue with the work. Beautiful. That is a great messianic vision. It's such a beautiful way, David, of describing why, you know, people have a very hard time, like, thinking about the Mashiach. Like, what is that? Like, wrapping their heads around that. And I just think the way you described the epic ultimate building of the world, the fixing, the repair of every issue and problem. It's like, that helps explain why it takes so long, why it's so important, and ultimately why we're here. I mean, what would be the purpose if just, you know, if God wanted to make a world filled with robots and angels and perfect beings, just to sort of do his bidding? Um, I just think this is an amazing, amazing um, conversation of some of the just... I literally had no intention of getting to this conversation with you, Dave. I want you to know, look at this. I have two pages, a piece of paper of questions of your life and Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. And honestly, you just demonstrated through this whole talk. That's not what it's about. It's really about what you and I have been discussing for the last 45 minutes to an hour. And I really, I want to thank you for really enlightening me and our listeners. Um, Sometimes we have a tendency to take a little more seriously wisdom that comes from someone who's made it in the material world, a Harvard grad who wrote for the Simpsons, you know, like, um, but I, um, I think it's really incredible how you found this light, how you're sharing it. And I hope we can do some more learning and talking together. Uh, you get to New York, love for you to come and speak sometime in person. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I do a weekly podcast, um, mm-hmm. It's called Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. And it's on all the platforms. Spirit, um, I'm writing so, this in. Spiritual Tools. Yeah, Spiritual for- Tools for an Outrageous World. And and I, I help to run a you know a, a place out here in Los Angeles called the Happy Minion of L.A. I've davened um, there. It's an awesome, awesome minion. When you're in L.A. next, anyone listening to this, you've got to go to the Happy Minion uh, where David is. Where is it based now? Yeah, it's right in the heart of Pico Robertson, like in the main, you know, where all the action is. We're right, right there in the middle That's of the awesome. strip. So, so it's my good, my my good friend Yona Bookstein um, introduced me to that many years ago. And, yeah, sure, uh, he was just there this past Shabbos. I just saw him there. He's a very holy yeah. guy. He's a great guy. Um, That's you know, amazing. I, I just sort of like, uh, you know, kind of try to put a one final point to wrap up everything that we've been talking about, um, which is that. Each person is a microcosm of the universe. And you fix yourself, you fix the whole world. 
In other words, maybe some of these ideas might get slightly overwhelming about just this vision of, you know, cosmic completeness and redemption and transcendence and all the rest. But it all boils down to the simple idea, you fix yourself, you fix the world. And how is that? Just elaborate a little more. How is it? You know, because I've heard a lot of these great speeches, make your bed in the morning. Jordan Peterson has a whole, a little of a harangue on some of the uh, social justice warriors today feels that there should be more focus on fixing our own individual problems before going out there and trying to fix the world. How is fixing your own microcosm, your own individual life, fixing the world? Because we have the entire universe inside of us. In other words, things are working on multiple levels simultaneously. So this is not a call to be um, self-centered at all. Mm -hmm. But it's you have to understand that, you know, when, when, when you overcome some sort of challenge, that there's a cosmic reverberation to every single thing that you do. And so it's a very empowering type of yeah. idea. Yeah. I heard yeah. in the name of Rabbi Israel Salanter that the loudest sound in the universe is the sound of a breaking a bad habit. Can Ooh. you imagine? Love it. A sound of break. I'm writing this down. You know, um, what you were saying, I'll just, uh, we're, we're coming to a close here, but everything you're saying is so based on like the ABCs of Judaism. Uh, the Kabbalah teaches that there are 10 sphero to each individual soul. But we also know that they're, you know, sort of the emanations within us, but they mirror the 10 emanations of which God actually operates the entire world. Um, and so there is this incredible parallel between the individual and the klal or the communal or the, you know, the microcosm and the macro, such that when we do something individually, it has a cosmic impact. And I find that to be very inspirational, that we're not just keeping mitzvah for ourselves, that every mitzvah is elevating the world. And God forbid, every way that we break the relationship somehow, we create distance between ourselves and you know the ultimate reality, God himself. So there is this, they go hand in hand. And um, you know, I think that you know, to be a, uh, you know, it's kind of a nice idea if you think about it. Like if I want to do something great for the world, I have to start with myself, not just because that's a practical way of doing it, but because that also changes things. That changes things for all of us when each of us does well individually. It's a very okay. beautiful Torah teaching. All right. So I'm going to, I just want to mention that again. What is the, the name of your podcast? It's called Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. David Sachs. Um, I thank you, David, for, is that, is that correct? Yeah. 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 Every week. Okay, great. That's amazing. Uh, you gotta let me know when you come to New York, cause I want people to, uh, this would be very, very powerful for us to, uh, to host you in, in poison, as they say. Thank you so much. I would love to. Yeah. And would, would you send regards to Conan O'Brien? He has no idea who I am, but I've been, <laughs> I've been faithfully following him for many, many years, especially the oh, very ador adorable clips he made when he went to Israel. I absolutely yeah, love he's those. He's the best. But uh, you've uh, you've done an incredible. Uh, I don't know. You're you're a tremendous light, David. Kolkovo to you. Thank you so uh, much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for, for all you do. And, oh, the, your thoughts have been amazing. Incredibly well received. And uh, Shem should bless you to go, Mechail. Mechail, you should keep teaching. Amen, amen.
for you too. You've done amazing things too, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for helping. Yeah.